Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking Canadian higher education, Canadian higher education collapse, and Canadian international students. It's all coming up. Allison and the college just brought in 5,000 new students and has nowhere to put them. We have cases like that, and it's, I mean, it's absurd. Um, so we don't have that kind of good connection around those things, and we do not have a great history of planning for higher education. So not everybody believes it's a problem, and nobody's in charge. And if there's one thing Canadian higher education suits are bad at, it's coordination. Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly range of this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and for the next couple of weeks, before we get going properly, we have a couple of specials. Next week, we'll be in Amsterdam for the Wonky SU study tour. Uh, We're actually going to record that in a coffee shop, so who knows how that's going to go. But this week, we are in Toronto with three top draw sector experts from Canada. First up, Alex Usher is President of Higher Education Strategy Associates. Alex, your highlight of 2022? The fact that Canada seems to have finally hit a wall on international student recruitment. Wow, fascinating. We'll we'll come to that. Uh, Tiffany McLennan is Research Analyst at HESA. Tiffany, your uh, highlight of 2022? I'm going to take it in a different route and say my highlight of 2022 was one of the most expensive chemistry textbooks moving into an open source realm, which I'm sure we won't talk about, but exciting news over here. Yeah, lots of debates about um, open source and textbook costs and all, all sorts of fascinating. And, and uh, also in the team, Jonathan Macquarie is Manager of uh, Academic Planning at Higher Education Strategy Associates. Jonathan, your highlight of 2022. Yeah, absolutely. Probably one of the big highlights is just the fact that uh, people were mostly in classes again this year. And so there was, but there was some interesting retention of some of the things instructors and faculty and students learned about learning online. So sort of, you know, people are back in the classrooms, but we're learn- we learned some lessons that I think are getting retained. Interesting. Yes, good. Again, hopefully we'll come to that. So we start this week, uh, we thought we'd do a bit of a comparison. So I thought it'd be fun to ask you first, Alex, what you see as the sort of differences, similarities, where, you know, we, we, we ought to be feel, feel lucky. That, you know, that kind of thing. Let me do the comparisons first. It, they're, they're pretty simple. I mean, I, there's a lot that will seem familiar if you, if you walk out of a... Uh, UK university into a Canadian one, um, or actually more accurately from a Scottish university into a Canadian one, because our, our system is based off the, the Scottish system, not the English one. It's how we're, it's actually how we're different from the Americans. We've always had four year, um, the residential aspect of university has never been particularly important. Um, you build universities in big cities and people live where they can. Um, the, we are better funded than pretty much any system in the world um and i think that majorly what that what that means is that we have actually have the best paid academics of any public system in the world so uh that's certainly a, a, a con- contrast with the uk i think um in terms of how the universities actually work um i would say the big difference is that uh uk universities as I understand them, are actually a lot more forward-thinking about things like um, uh, student pastoral care, um, and 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 frankly, in the whole teaching thing. As I was saying to Tiffany before we got on the the call, we said, um, you know, what's different between Canada and the UK? And the difference is in the UK, professors uh, are at least theoretically supposed to know how to teach, and you know, you, you've got you've got certificates for those kinds of things and professional requirements. And my impression just from some family who, who teach uh, in the UK is just there is a lot more attention paid to pedagogy. There's a lot more and a lot more attention paid to documenting what's going on in class, documenting learning. Um, so learning portfolios and the whole process about having secondary readers from other universities look at your rubrics. That's very, very different from, from Canada where um, 
largely the term academic freedom is interpreted to mean you don't need to worry about any of that stuff. Jonathan, let's explore this uh, this, this pastoral thing uh, a little bit. I mean, that, that, funnily enough, I mean, we've recorded uh, the, the regular episode of The Wonky Show this morning. And, and again, we're having these debates here about the the overlaps and gaps between statutory health services and, and, and all sorts of other things like that. So where, you know, in the British system, there's, there's this increasing expectation that universities will do everything when it comes to, you know, a student. But but, but by the sounds of it, that's not the case uh, in Canada. No, not, not particularly. There's some... There's an impulse for that maybe a little bit more for first-year students who might get preferred access to dorms or might get the, the sort of meal plans set up a bit more quickly. And there can be some pathways for students who are not living at home to get that sort of first year settled in and then move off campus. But no, there there really is the, the general expectation, at, I think, for, for the a lot of Canadian students, particularly Canadian students who move away from their home to go to university, uh, would be, you know, this is, you're an adult now, we're going to, we're, you're going to be out in the world. Uh, this is your big chance to, to, to assert your independence, uh, learn a bit about you know, be, being alone or being with a group of other people your age and figuring that out. And, um, you know, the, the university's role really is only to provide a, a amount of housing to some students. Um, and, you know, it can vary. There's some, you know, there are some specific colleges or, or, or sectors or parts of a university that have a bit more of that pastoral care thing. The University of Toronto has a few like that, for example. But no, the real expectation is, you know, you're out, you're on your own. Uh, that's part of the fun. That's part of the education. Get out there. <laughs> but again, though, with uh, again, assuming that we're talking about a student moving away from home, which only about you know a lot of people still live at home in Canada when they go to university. I would say the one difference, uh, the one of the one thing where that place where that's not true is the issue of student mental health. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was going to say because because presumably you. Like, you, you like every other Western economy must must have a youth mental health crisis on. I mean, every, everyone seems to be kind of saying that in in different ways, and and there are interactions with both the teaching and learning experience and the student life experience, aren't there? Yeah, and I would say where where the UK is very different from Canada is that they integrate those two in a way that we don't. Our our student services, as we call them, which would include health, mental health, and counselling, and a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, interacts sporadically with the academic stuff. I mean, I think, I think in general, the way it's sort of seen is that academics, um, get together as a university to pay, uh, non-academics to take those students off their hands. The idea that you're integrating it at the level of the frontline, uh, you know, the idea of a professor as in effect, a frontline worker who might have some, uh, assistance with, it. I mean, I'm not saying no profs to do it, but I would say that there's, there's an aspect of, of not that those are two separate worlds in a way that I don't think they are in the UK, or at least to a, a less. Now, t t Tiffany, tell us what's been happening this year in terms of attendance, because, of, you know, campus is reopening. One of the big thing that happened in the UK just before Christmas was this, this extraordinarily viral tweet thread from an academic who'd got photos of empty seminar rooms and lecture theatres and lots of speculation about whether it was his teaching or whether it was a kind of post-pandemic thing or perhaps because you know, there's a cost of living crisis. So what's attendance been like? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've seen that same uh, tweet thread, actually, and it sparked quite some over here as well, people talking about it. Um, I probably stay a little more connected with a different type of campus. Um, so, for example... I have a stronger tie to small, primarily undergraduate residential campuses where people are on campus all the time. Um, from the people that I've talked to in their leadership, their attendance hasn't changed that drastically. Um, a lot of them, that said, though, didn't really shut down over the pandemic either. Um, they kept students on their campus pretty well the entire time. Um, so maybe a different taste overall, but um, I would say at some of the bigger institutions, um, I have seen some chatter about slightly decreased enrollment, but for the most part, um, the it seems like there's a bigger issue with attendance in K-12 to than there is in post-secondary. Alex, let me ask you, so notwithstanding the fact that there are different systems in Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales and England, um, the, the, you know, there's a federal system, isn't there? And... and one of the impressions I get, to tell me if I'm wrong, is that is that quite there isn't really much sense of a sort of national strategy around higher education outside of the big issues of student finance and research funding. No, and and there 
So, uh, in our federal system, I would say the operations of universities are in the hands of the provinces. And our provinces are, first of all, there's 10 of them, uh, as opposed to the four at home nations. And uh, we don't have, Ontario's big, but it's not as big as England is compared to the others. So, there's no one province that dominates debate. Um, I, I once told Mark, actually, I said, Wonky would, if I, if I, if I could in Canada, I'd run a company like Wonky. And he said, why didn't you? And I said, because our, our system is 10 Scotland. And he said, oh my God, we couldn't run our, we couldn't run Wonky if, if the UK was 10 Scotland. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, you go to Whitehall and that's where everything is, right? I mean, everything's in a city and, and, and London is a big city and Canada, just the geography doesn't work the same way. So there isn't a national discussion about, um, higher education, which is why there's no newspaper that does that kind of stuff, really, like, uh, you know, like the Chronicle does in the United States. Now, that doesn't mean that there's, there isn't a lot of parallel themes going on. You know what I mean? Like, uh, um, so I, there's a lot of echoes, let's put it that way, even, even if there's not one real theme. The, the themes that you can get come from the federal government, and those will be around student assistance, where they have a, an increasingly large role. Technically, it's a shared jurisdiction with provinces, but they are increasingly they're the senior partner and research where that is uh, effectively only a federal uh, jurisdiction really but I mean, look, look, jonathan that's really interesting because you know if i tie a couple of threads up here one of the things that's been happening in the uk is one you know almost all public policy around higher education seems to assume that the that students are all harry potter a kind of extended version of a boarding school um and and, and therefore our children and therefore are fundamentally being looked after by parents or by universities but then also um you know the 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 one group in the in the entirety of society that hasn't really been helped out financially during our cost of living crisis are students and and uh, uh, you know tell me if i'm wrong but i get a sense that that that, uh, at least in national politics in canada there is a sense that one of the things that political parties have to do is have an offer for young people and students and you know perhaps some financial assistance in the pandemic and so on yeah no i think that sense is largely correct i mean i know with our company one of the the common themes or critiques we often have is that there's a lot of political attention paid to students and sometimes less attention paid to funding institutions and how you know what the experience with students will be like once they're at those institutions um, I think it's interesting. So, but this sort of circle back to the, the comment about the differences in provinces, the sort of students who are being targeted and enticed with different sorts of offerings or different sort of scholarships or bursaries or enrollment packages, et cetera, can quite, quite vary depending on which province you're in. You know, you know, if some of the more, you know, a province like Alberta, you're seeing a lot more funding for, you know, entering into, you know, trades, mechanical trades, sort of, you know, useful quote-unquote useful skills like that, whereas in other provinces, it's a little bit more, you know, Quebec, for example, or, you know, Ontario, you might see a little bit less targeting like that. Well, um, so, yeah, so the, 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 there certainly is, though, I think I think it's easier politically as well to sell, hey, we're going to make sure students get money and, and incentives to go than it is to, you know, pay for universities or colleges that are sort of, that, and that gets embroiled in just a wider conversation about how much should we be paying public sector employees and how much are we paying for public services? I think a part of it with the federal, I mean, it's more with the federal government, what you're seeing with, with uh, paying students, I think, than it is with anybody else. This liberal government has decided in 2015 that, that giving more money to students was going to be, was going to nail down a particular section of the electorate. Um, and so they have pushed that. I don't think you're seeing that at the provincial level at all, really. Um, and though there has been a really big increase in, in funding for students lately, it hasn't, it's been COVID related rather than post COVID inflation, uh, related. Um, although I think it ends up, I mean, I think the people who end up having been hurt the most were actually the people who were helped the most in COVID. So it, it kind of balances out, but by accident, which is a very Canadian, uh, um, uh, we, we're. No, no, we're the country that works in practice, but not in theory. And 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 us having huge policy wins totally by accident, that's <laughs> completely on brand for us. And, and, and Tiffany, okay, look, w- one other thing before we uh, get to the next ne- next bit. Um, th- th- one of the things that sort of blows my mind is <laughs> we talk a hell of a lot, uh, certainly at Wonky, about regulation. Like, the, 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 you know, we have, an, we have an office for students, it regulates this kind of market of higher education providers... You know, I've spent two hours this morning in a webinar on new regulation on freedom of speech that the regulator is going to introduce. I don't get the sense of, the, of that that kind of regulatory role really existing at all 
from Canada, or at least to the extent to which it exists, it's like it's much lighter touch. Yeah, I wouldn't argue that uh, at all. Actually, um, I know Jim when we had met early in the year, and you were explaining some of the UK system to me. I think my jaw was on the floor the entire time. Um, you know, a lot of the policy actions that come from here are led by either student groups or through you know university groups advocating um, for themselves. A lot of the regulatory stuff. Um, it's kind of done as offshoot of government organizations, so quality assurance agencies, um, less so at bigger tables, which is really um, a, probably a really stark contrast to the UK overall. Yeah, and even when their regulations were rolled out, I remember a couple of years ago when uh, a couple of provinces decided universities and colleges needed free speech regulations, even that was largely, they said, you need these regulations in place, but then they largely left it to universities and colleges to craft something yeah. but that's the and then no that's follow the, up yeah that's <laughs> the fact is, is, is that something that is kind of true across um kind of arm's length bodies or or uh you know kind of those sorts of sectors in kind of in terms of the, the amount of trust afforded to institutions because one of the things that characterizes it is this deep mistrust where where the state every time something goes wrong in he the state is able to say well it's these terrible vice chancellors and and you know that that ability to point whenever a minister is under pressure at universities he's really key to it over here i would say part of it is it's not so much that it's a so that yes there is a lot more trust in institutions in canada particularly educational institutions than there is in the uk i think that's certainly true i would also say that the difference in approach to regulation partially comes from the way that you're a much more marketized higher education system than we are and uh and we, and we just don't we don't see regulation in the, we, we don't see regulation the same way because we don't see the market in the same way. I think, I think that's a pretty big one. Um, and the third thing, and I'm glad you brought up vice chancellors, our vice chancellors are paid a lot less than yours. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, they're less, they're responsible for less things. <laughs> you know, they're not running a giant, you know. Well, we might get to Laurentian at some point in this conversation and then <laughs> realize actually they are in charge of some pretty important stuff. But, um, I think I think the um, university presidents here, as our equivalent of vice chancellors, um, have not have not come under the same level of opprobrium that that British ones have, and a lot of that has to do with the fact. Actually, this is one place where the state has regulated, particularly in Ontario. They've just said, "Look, at you, if we're going to claw back any money you pay your your university president over a certain level," and that happened a decade ago. And yeah, guess what? They've stayed. Great. Now let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Mike Kerrigan, Head of Research and Insights for Access and Participation at Nottingham Trent University. I've been blogging about yet more data dashboards released by the Office for Students. The new Student Characteristics Dashboards. There's not one, not two, but three for data geeks such as myself to have fun with. One that particularly caught my eye was the Entry Qualification Dashboard. A quick glance and we see that students with DDD at A-level worth 72 tariff points or less actually fare better in terms of continuation, attainment and progression than beta entrants who achieved the maximum distinction star, distinction star, distinction star worth 144 tariff points. Having qualified for university myself through the BTEC route, I'm certainly not criticising this route, which provides an alternative pathway for many thousands of people from underrepresented groups. But I do think we need to acknowledge these stark differences. While there are equivalencies in tariff points for the A11 and BTEC routes, that's where the sim similarities end. Tariffs are a poor predictor of academic preparedness. BTECs are typically studied by students with other characteristics known to be negatively associated with success. It's about time we acknowledged that a quality of outcomes is unrealistic. As we move towards the new EO, and as the sector transitions to T-levels, we need to drill down on this data to course level in our own institutions. We need to think beyond the UCAS tariff and ask ourselves, is there a mismatch between level three qualifications and undergraduate assessment practices? Now, uh, next up, a university actually fell over this year, didn't it, Alex? Tell us what happened. It was last year, actually. So it was, it was, June, it was uh, January of 2021, the last day of January 2021. Um, the Laurentian... Uh, Laurentian University in Sudbury, which is a bilingual and tricultural university in one of Canada's great mining cities, um, filed for our equivalency of what the Americans call Chapter 11. Uh, so they filed for creditor, creditor protection. 
Um, and in Canada, what that allows them to do is basically it allows management to rip up all the union deals that exist. It allows management to do all sorts of things, you know, that you can do for restructuring under bankruptcy protection. Um, nobody ever thought until this happened that a public, a quasi public sector institution could use that kind of protection. Too, too big to fail, surely. (laughs) Well, that's what everybody thought. Yeah. Now, I mean, you have provisions in your regulation, getting back to differences in national approaches to regulations, about how to wind up institutions that are are failing. Now, uh, we don't have that. And so the institution felt it was, or the leadership of the institution felt this was the only way to go. So they went through the CCAA, Canadian or Companies Protection Act, and and they, um, you know, they tore things up. They they made a, a... redundant a lot of people and um what's been happening this year however is that a lot more has come out about what were the institution's choices just before uh filing for cca protection and it's become increasingly clear over the last year as information has dripped out that um you know the way i put it is that the president drove the bus over the deliberately drove the bus over the cliff there were other options available to him and to the university that, um, uh, there's no question the university was in financial trouble. It had made some bad, some risky decisions that went bad and it was hit by COVID and it was hit by, uh, changes in provincial policy that affected it disproportionately. It was in a lot of trouble in, uh, in the fall of 2020. There was no question about that, but there were other options available that didn't involve, um, going under basically and firing a whole bunch of staff and, and, and the restructuring that, that. So, so how many, how many, what sort of um, size, how many students? So this is an institution that before this happened had about 8,000 students and it was about 5,500 who were in the English part of the university and 2,500 in the French part of the university. Wow. So that, I mean, it's, it's quite a thing and presumably, you know, a dominant anchor institution for that, um, for that city. Absolutely. That w- that was part of the, the deal is how, how, how essential that institution was to a city of a hundred thousand, 120,000, I guess. Um, and that, and that, you know, some of the risky decisions they had made had turned out very well in the short term. They were a rising university. They were the only small university to win one of the big research competitions that had happened earlier in the decade. And, and in many ways they were seen as a university on the way up until fairly, fairly close to. So when you say, uh, the president drew the, you know, drove it up over the cliff, what, what were the things in those kind of final months that, uh, you know, what were the choices made that, that kind of sealed the fate? Uh, well, the big one was that they had a $15 million line of credit that they chose to repay rather than to hold on to which if you're cash poor, you think you would do, right? And that was the whole point, was they were trying to claim that they were um, not just insolvent, but, uh, you know, they wouldn't be able to make payroll until, you know, until the end. And the government made some counteroffers. Well, this is what we now know, uh, as of about a month ago, we've actually seen the exchange of letters that occurred in the week before um, they went to CCAA. Uh, they, uh, the government said, look, we'll give you $12 million, no questions asked. But you want any more than that, we need some accounting of what went on. And the government and Laurentian turned them down. And um, they wanted $100 million, no questions asked, because that's what they figured it would cost to buy off the faculty. They wanted to lay off about a third of the faculty, uh, which they eventually did through the, uh, through the, uh, the restructuring process. And, and now the, the, you know, I think the, the so they, they laid them off and now the, the ex-professors are all creditors of the university and I think they got 20 or 25 cents on the dollar in the final settlement. Um, but they wanted to pay them 100% on the dollar, but they wanted the, Fed, they wanted the provincial government to pay for it. And the provincial government said no. Um, what's interesting in all these letters is that is the Laurentian was very careful to hide the fact that it had had $14 million in hand through this line of credit and given it back to the bank uh, a, couple of, a couple of months before that. When again, if you were really in trouble, there was no reason to do that. They were under no compulsion to do that. So I think that was that was the moment where everyone said, "Oh, okay, he really did drive it over the bus. He really did have the the intention uh, because he thought it would be better. It was too embarrassing, basically, to go to the public and say or go to the union and say this is why we made this is here are the risky bets that have all gone wrong, 
Um, and he didn't want to do that uh, unless he had he had legal protection, which is what CCA or a hundred million dollars of somebody else. Or a hundred million dollars. Yeah, yeah, a hundred million dollar cushion. Uh, what well, in terms of the kind of, I mean, I mean, it's, this is a really silly question, I guess. But um, how, how, what, where was the um, governing body, <laughs> and what, you know, how, what are the holes in regulation here that have kind of allowed that to occur? It, and and part of, a, I guess, part of my question is, you know, is this a complete freak accident where the university was really unlucky, or? Could it happen again if, you know, some some tightening up isn't done of, you know, either regulation or governance or whatever? I think there's three answers to that question. One is the board was largely asleep at the wheel um, in the sense that I think they were too close to the administration to ask difficult questions uh, on finances. And, and part of that is also, I suspect, that some of them were not qualified. Like, they just didn't have the right mix of skills. The governance isn't just about the, the skills matrix on the board. It's also about, you know, the attitude, like what's my job here vis-a-vis the administration. Um, and I just don't think they asked the right questions. That's one thing. Um, they didn't have the skills. The second thing is, uh, is it a one-off? Well, there's so many people who are making, yes, COVID, you know, hurt some institutions. And these guys took some uh, large and uncommon risks. I won't say they're the only ones, because I think there are a few others in Canada who could get into similar trouble at some point. Um, but the other biggest issue is the funding, right? So the funding system in, in, in effect... Um, Ontario over the last, which is the province that Laurentia was in, um, went from being a province that looked, you know, vaguely like continental Europe and its funding to one that looked like the United States, right? So it looks like Michigan, it looks like Washington, um, something like 60% of the budget comes from student fees. And this was working out for institutions, mainly because they could go to international students, even though there was, you know, a, a freeze in tuition here or very, uh, or, you know, tuition was not increasing, um, much above inflation. Uh, what they would do is they would just all go to international students. And that's been the trick for Canada. We've been able to have very healthy uh, university finances for the last decade, even though government has effectively frozen funding um, in real terms. And the difference is that Laurentian never got on that bandwagon. And so compared to other universities of their size, they were missing, you know, eight, you know, eight, ten. 12, $15 million a year, uh, compared to, um, you know, other similar institutions. And so I think, uh, most institutions have learned this lesson anyway, but after Laurentian happened, um, you really saw international students take off at, at Ontario university. Everybody realized that that's the safety is getting that money, that un, um, that unregulated money from, from international students. Yeah, I think I think that you know the the main I think what you cover out so some of the, the the bones of it is important. But I think one thing to really that's really important to keep in mind with the sort of fallout and what's happened with this. You know, so we talked about the layoffs. So you had you know 116 full time faculty laid off and 195 staff overall. And you know you see a lot. You even within this year you see stories of of a lot of these people. You know, a 40 or 50 year old professor who is having trouble adjusting to a new position. And you also see, frankly, what is what's happened in terms of how some faculty see administration is this is basically the worst assumptions about administration being, you know, interested more in capital projects and pleasing a board or just their own sort of vanity, um, taking the foreground as opposed to, you know, collegial governance and you know, program design, you know, pedagogy and teaching. And basically now there, there there's this live example of that that confirms some of the worst assumptions about administration, which colors, I think, a, a number of administrators across, you know, fairly or unfairly across Canada. Like, I definitely see that rhetoric ratchet up even further now because now they have a very clear example of, frankly, a, an administration team and a president who did drive an institution off a cliff. Um, so there's a lot, I think it's a real step back in terms of administration faculty relationships, not just in Ontario, but more widely. Well, fascinating stuff. And we will put some links to, uh, numerous of Alex's blogs on the, uh, issue from the, uh, one uh, blog a day, uh, series from, uh, Alex, uh, in the show notes. Good. Now, uh, every week on the show, we look back at how things were and how things came to be with academic registrar and sector historian, Mike Ratcliffe. Here's the hidden history of HE. Mm-hmm. 
Expanding our universities is one of those things that has been an issue all the way through the history. How do we how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that there comes a point where government needs to expand our universities uh, and think about how it wants to organise that? Now, less so in a market type system, but when we had planning bodies, how should we do that? Now, the biggest set of expansion came straight after the Second World War, where um, they knew in advance that returning students were going to come back. Um, either they'd already gone off to war, they'd been off into a variety of different occupations, and they were going to want to have higher education. The Americans handled this through their uh, GI Bill, um, but we set about just expanding our universities. The interesting bit is that he started planning for this in act, you know, active way in 1943. So before we've even invaded Normandy, the British university sector is planning to have won the war and how it's going to cope with all the students who are going to come back. So excellent planning from the UGC. Um, and off it goes. It works out that actually it doesn't really need to expand the number of universities because most of the universities it's been funding have been really small all the way through the 30s. Um, again, if we think we have trouble now, try running a university through the Great Depression when most of the students have to pay their fees. So they've not expanded as much as they thought so they were ready for them all to expand the only difference is that um the chair of the ugc walter mobley is persuaded uh to let the university college of north staffordshire start and so ad lindsay uh, persuades him that it'd be a really good idea to set up a new kind of university and mobley is very concerned about um how the war has gone how it's impacted on universities and he thinks we need new types of students uh, and so they're allowed to run a four-year course predominantly residential um uh, an opportunity to have a foundation course at the minute so it's trying to do something different and they get going and everyone else starts to expand and then we go through the 50s just slowly upgrading universities so the university colleges become universities they all expand there's a bit of a backlash if you think about um kingsley amos and lucky jim and his more means worse thing um but generally this is the idea that we can continue by the end of the decade, it's clear we need more universities. They accede to a bid from Sussex to set up a new university college at Brighton. But then, um, having got to that stage, they have a pause and think it's probably worth having a think about setting up new types of universities. And then starts this marvellous thing, this bidding competition to have universities. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, finally this week, uh, we thought we'd talk about international students. So we, we, we were coming on to international students. Uh, but Tiffany, um, there's, 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 there's a big reliance, isn't there, financially on, on international students? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the majority um, of the provinces in Canada, uh, domestic student tuition has been capped at relatively low percentages. So Nova Scotia, for example, it's been capped at 3% for as long as I've been a part of the post-secondary system. Um, whereas international student tuition has been largely unregulated. Um, and universities, colleges, uh, post-secondary institutions otherwise, um, have really been making a reliance on that because it's, you know, in stagnant or decreasing provincial funding. Um, it is one of the ways to make up the dollars, and that just continues um, more and more. I think it's still almost in every province, the reliance on international students is growing there's been a big growth in international students in the uk largely because <laughs> you know um the the core tuition fee for home domiciled students is frozen so that that story sounds familiar but presumably once you start getting to really serious numbers there are consequences that perhaps were 
I don't know, unintended. Sure, yeah, no, there's a couple that, you know, come to mind immediately, some of which I actually was uh, part of mitigating back in my fact teaching days. But yeah, so there's a couple. One is, I think, um, it took a lot of catch-up, and I think there's still some catch-up in terms of preparing students from different countries for uh, classrooms here. Um, there was a bit of an assumption, I think, earlier in the international recruitment game, and one that kind of goes, like, well, you know what, as long as they pass their language exam, uh, they'll be fine, right? They'll they'll, they'll have otherwise the, the basic... These days run by an offshoot of Duolingo. <laughs> exactly. Oh, gosh, yes. Well, the Duolingo <laughs> thing is a whole... Oh, yes. So, so actually, yeah, well, we could get... Yeah, so that's even... Even the language requirement element has been a bit... Uh, stripped down a bit. Uh, and so I think there was a, a real decoupling of the academic skills and the sort of just, um, you know, cultural differences, like, you know, those sorts of things, the, the being in the classroom, not just the bare learning that um, a lot of institutions, colleges and universities didn't really prepare for. And some are increasingly doing so and have done so for the last two years, but it's never really caught up to the pace at which international students were recruited and brought into institutions, which uh, created, you know, some challenges in classrooms, right? Because you'd have professors or uh, teaching assistants or whoever wanting to support these students, but not really knowing how to do so. There was no real training on the teaching side either for how to to, to deal with that. Um, I think the second consequence I'd want to point to would be, uh, and, and one that we've been monitoring here for a little bit now, is the sort of some increasing community blowback around housing. And, you know, where in a lot of Canadian, major Canadian uh, cities, um, the housing rental market is very tight, you know, often under 1% vacancy rates. And so when uh, institutions are bringing in a large number of international students and sort of looking for those those rental spaces, it creates increasing pressure. And, you know, when, when things are that tight, uh, there's definitely a lot of space to blame um, you know, the institution or students or or frankly to exploit them. There's, there's a lot of stories in any number of cities about landlords packing students into a small house that's you know unfit for the number of people who are who are habitating that place and it just creates further blowback further sort of and further impressions that you know these are institutions that aren't part of the community these are institutions that are separate from the community and sort of doing their own thing rather than contributing materially to the places you know where they're located uh, yes, it's, it's pretty difficult to turn around to the to, to the local community and say, "Look at all this economic benefit." When mm-hmm, exactly, uh, when they can't find anywhere to live, and most of the economic benefit is going to a landlord. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right. A land, yeah, exactly, or or to or just straight, as they say, just straight to the institutional coffers, not to yeah. you know anyone outside of there. Yeah, and and and, and so okay, Alex. So here's a question for you: um, A, who 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 thinks it's their problem to fix? This one, because you know, it, it, everyone points at each other like that Spider Man meme over this problem in the UK. <laughs> um, and then where's the focus? Is it on um, increasing supply or reducing demand? Because neither of those sound realistic at this point. Um, that's an interesting question. I, it's no, look, nobody thinks some people deny that there's a problem. Uh, and it's true that it is the problems are, are differential, you know in the big cities and, and places like Halifax and, and some weird places like Sydney, where you have, uh, you know, two thirds of the students are now international. There's a big problem. Other parts of the country, it's not a big deal. If I go to Edmonton or Calgary, nobody talks about housing problems there. So uh, it's not universal. One. Second of all, you have to understand that the politics of this are slightly entwined with the politics of immigration generally in this country, as they are with yours, as, as your, uh, your wonderful home office keeps, uh, keeps proving every few months and then sending us thousands of new students. Um, so the, the government of Canada wants to increase the population. And so they are talking about doubling incoming numbers. So normally we were around a quarter of a million for many years. The government of the day is now talking about half a million a year uh, immigrants, uh, of whom students are not in that category, but we have a lot of, of pathways from being a student to being a citizen. So, so it doesn't matter in the long run. Um, the problem is, is that the provincial and municipal governments whose cooperation is needed to build more housing units are stuck in the 1980s, I think, when it comes to this kind of, there's certainly there's a lot of work being done and people are saying, you know, uh, we need 1.5 million houses in Ontario to meet the growing population. And there are serious people in, in civic governments who are saying, oh no, if you, if you build, if you build houses, you'll just bring too many people in. 
And it's like, well, okay. So, but this is just it. So I don't think institutions do not have, um, a universally great record of working with cities to tell them, um, that we're bringing in all these students. Um, you know, so I think there's certainly some students, some places in Ontario that have been very surprised lately to find out that the, you know, the, wow, we're a city of 50,000 and the college just brought in 5,000 new students and has nowhere to put them. We have cases like that and it's, I mean, it's absurd. Um, so we don't have that kind of good connection around those things and we do not have a great history of planning for higher education um for various reasons again we just don't plan we just sort of assume things will will fall into place for us we'll muddle for it um so not everybody believes it's a problem and nobody's in charge and if there's one thing canadian higher education institutes are bad at it's coordination so i'm um I'm always astonished by the amount of goodwill in Canadian higher education to tackle these things, but there's a lot of structural barriers to actually doing anything. Yeah. And, okay. I mean, on, on the, on the, on the sort of experience kind of bit of this, uh, Tiffany, one of the things that is, is, um, definitely happening in the UK is this, you know, there's, there's a 20 hour limit that the number of hours that an international student can work for. And there's, um, you know, real the real pressure building from international students in the middle of a cost of living crisis where we didn't sufficiently warn people how expensive the UK was going to become to kind of bust that limit. And there's a sus suspicion that people are in the grey economy. Now, remind me, you don't have that kind of limit, do you? You kind of... We do, actually. Um, we do have hours working limits for international students, which was recently increased. Um, and admittedly, I don't know the hours off the top of my head. We, we did have a 20-hour limit, and now we don't. But that's that's six weeks ago. But even then, when that limit was increased, you know, in the student union, student union realm, which I'm still affiliated in, you know, there are some of us sitting around like, well, what does that actually change? Because a lot of the times, like, people are kind of working different jobs that anyways. Um, and there is... sure how well that was, that was ever observed. Yeah. Um, yeah inter interesting. Yeah. Catch your hand, grey economy. Yeah, exactly. And even then, um, I mean, I would argue in Canada, we had the same thing as the UK, where we don't really upfront discuss the cost of living in different places um, that are continuously increasing. And I would say there's very few institutions um, who've kind of started focusing more on that and being a little more upfront with students about what the costs are once you actually come into the country, because you can't work 20, 30, 40 hours a week and pay your international student tuition and afford to live. It's in a lot of places just not feasible. But, but but more broadly, one of the you know one of the things that people have been talking about a lot. So there's a big um, private ho uh, private halls of residence provider in the UK that put a report out a couple of months ago that was saying, look, new developers for student housing units need to think about this because the kind of luxury student accommodation that it was possible to sell to the Chinese upper middle classes ten years ago is not the sort of thing that you can sell to um, the new recruitment markets of India, Pakistan, Nigeria, and so on. They just have less money. And, and I, I wonder whether you're starting to observe over that kind of 10 years or so that you've seen kind of differences in the economic kind of positional precarity of the international students being recruited. It's certainly the case that like the UK, our market has become much more heavily Indian, uh, not not Pakistan or, or Bangladesh, but India, and in particular Punjabi, um, over the last, I would say, eight years. Uh, and so that switch from China to India is very similar. Um, the difference, the difference is, is that our, the Indian students who are coming here are coming here to move. Like, this is an immigration play. Um, and it's, it's absolutely an immigration play. Everybody knows it. Nobody talks about it. Um, yeah. I, don't know, I don't know what's better, everyone talking about it or everyone not talking about it. Both seem to have their downsides. Like, <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, and again, where those students are coming to places where you have existing diasporas, and Lord knows there's a lot of those in Toronto. So if you go, if you're up around Sheridan, that's a very heavily Indian and Punjabi area. They air Hockey Night in Canada in Punjabi. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, um, it is one of those, um, we don't use the term enclave, but it's certainly, it's a majority Punjabi area. And yeah, it's lots of places to stay. And in a sense, that's what we've been counting on. I think we've reached the limits of it in the last little while. So yes, there's, but, but the other thing is, is that we never had luxury accommodation for the, or bespoke luxury accommodation for the Chinese in the first place. Our, our planning and building limits, we just never gone for those kind of uh, private providers that I know are a big deal in the UK and Australia. 
uh, and even in New Zealand to some extent, those are very rare. If, if you're saying, you know, we're starting to reach, starting to reach the limits, what, what kind of happens next if, you know, that's been the direction of travel for X number of years? You know, what, 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 what happens when suddenly all the lines on the graph start to cross rather than track each other? Uh, we might need to take um, cost management seriously. I mean, I mean, this is the thing is that Canadian higher education has not taken cost higher education seriously because it hasn't had to because it's had international students. And I, yes, at some point we're going to start looking more, I would say, like UK education in the sense that there will be a lot more managers looking, hunting around for efficiencies five years from now. I mean, the other possibility is there's also a domestic boom of students coming. So we're expecting a growth of about 20% in the next five to eight years in the number of domestic students. Um, so that will net, you know, to the, to those institutions that can still stuff more students in, um, that's a bit of a lifeline. Uh, and it may change some government views about funding. So we may get out of the 15 rut that we, year rut that we're in, but I wouldn't. And, 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 and when that kind of pilot high, I won't say sell it cheap, but when that kind of pilot high thing happens, do, do you figure there will end up being a bit of, bit more pressure to have a bit more regulation or will that just be allowed to happen no if it would lead to a lot i mean just just given general political trends here i'm not sure it would lead to a great deal more regulation i think it may accelerate existing efforts to in in some provinces and among some sort of political quarters to sort to really encourage people to rethink whether university is really the path to a stable career in the same way it was seen, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And because, you know, there's been a, there's a real dialogue in Canada, I think, and in, in, in particularly in provinces like Alberta, Saskatchewan, um, about the value of the college degree and going into, you know, into the trade. So I think, I think that might be the big shift that you, you start to see. Is so so it actually, it, it becomes much more about there being too many graduates rather exactly. than there being too yeah. many students packed into Exactly. And we're already starting to see that rhetoric of there's too many graduates. It used to be, you know, the humanities student flipping fries, but even you now business schools are starting to even out. Right. And there, I've, you know, had talk conversations with employers with like, look, there's a lot of business school graduates running around out there right now. Um, so yeah, there, I, it becomes more uh, exactly more a question of too many graduates, uh, than anything else. I, I think, oh. No, no, I was just going to say, I think I, it won't be regulation the way it happens in the UK. What there will be will be dictatorial outbursts from provincial governments when something goes wrong, which is slightly different. Um, and so I think that one of the things that may happen, so this, as, as I said, we've got more uh, domestic students coming through the pipeline. That's just a demographic wave. I think it's, you know, we've been at a demographic trough for the last 10 years. That's one of the things that's made it easy for institutions to get to put, you know, to, to cram in international students because the alternative to an international student is nothing. If the alternative to an international student is another domestic student, politically, this starts to get really tricky. And I think one of the things that you may see is simply that you will get governments just saying, you know, you're going to, we're not going to let anybody take more than 30% of their student body from international students. It'll be that kind of, I don't know if that, that's not really regulation. That's just sort of fiat. Just a thing. Yeah, it's just it's just, it's just fiat decision making. I can see that happen. I can absolutely see that happening. But um, I, I, no regulation. It's just too complicated for us. We're a simple people, and uh, <laughs> we like to no, react to stuff more than plan. So no two hundred thousand word regulatory framework that makes it look like basically a political decision is being you know carried out objectively. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. No, 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 that's very true. We, I mean, we like our ministers like preserving their, and that's one of the reasons we don't do it is because actually that's, that's a main way we, we have, so we have the kinds of, of organizations that you do to do quality assurance, but they're advisory to the minister, not they make decisions on their own. So the government, you know, if the government doesn't like the decision, they just change. Excellent. Well, great conversation. Let me just ask each of you for a little 2023 prediction in terms of something that uh, UK friends and colleagues should look out for in terms of something you think is going to happen. Who wants to go first? Oh, I might I might leap in and say I think uh, I think this year 2023 is going to be a, quite a, an interesting year of reckoning for in terms of uh, whether micro credentials are the hot new thing or not. Um, I think there's already some some back and forth about that and it's it, there's already some some concern or hesitation in Canada around like are these actually really going to be the big the big new educational model that um they were initially sort of envisioned to be well that was mine um 
<laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, I'm so sorry. No, I, I would probably just build on that. You know, you have conversations around, you know, what alternative methods of education look like. And, you know, we just we're going through, I'm not going to say went through, we're going through a pandemic. We we have shifted a lot of what we think traditional education looks like. And what does that actually mean? Um, what does that mean for learners? What does that mean for instructors? What does that mean for everyone on the outside looking in? Um, so I think kind of maybe the one thing to look out for is just to see how the dialogue starts shifting on what has the impacts of the pandemic actually been on higher education. I would say my, I, I hope my hope for 2023 um, is that it's actually a year that we spend a lot more time thinking about governance. Because uh, I think as as we talked about a little bit earlier, governance is a little bit uh, weak, could use a little bit of strengthening. Uh, if you want my actual prediction, that's never going to happen. Um, <laughs> and what we should probably be thinking, I think the big thing to watch for will be between... How many more universities have to fall over, Alex, before... <laughs> Well, but here's, so here's the interesting thing. It does turn out that most provinces have surpluses this year and quite big ones that were quite unexpected. Like we, everybody thought they were going to be bankrupt after, after COVID, but it turns out that they're not. It will be interesting to see how many of them choose to, uh, to put money in higher education. And we'll know that, you know, really over the period from about mid-March to mid-May. Um, and if they don't, uh, cause I think there's, there's, there's preconditions for some pretty big um, uh, investments, particularly the growing number of, of young people about to enter the system. Um, if we don't get it this year, we might not get it at all. So that, that's the one to watch for me. So that's about all we've got time for this week. Remember to dig deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on Acast, Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do pop over to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Alex, Tiffany, Jonathan, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. Wonky.